Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Metro editor Greg Jefferson, columnist and editorial board member Kerry Clack. Last Tuesday, May 24th, um, was election night in Texas. We had runoff elections for both the Democratic and Republican parties. But I think even those of us who follow politics um, avidly uh, found it very hard to focus on the elections, to, to care about them, to see any, any point to them, though they are important, because uh, about seven hours before the polls closed last Tuesday, uh, a gunman entered Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, uh, a town that's about 85 miles from San Antonio, and uh, went in with the AR-15 that he had purchased shortly after his 18th birthday and slaughtered 19 elementary school children and two teachers. And there are many more who are injured and being hospitalized right now. One of the most horrific days in this country's history um, and something that will take the community of Uvalde, I don't know how, much, how long it takes to recover from something so horrible. Um, and, um, it's something we're going to talk about there. I think there are several issues to, to talk about just the, I, th I think there've been a lot of questions about the timeline, the fact that you, it was an hour and 20, an hour and 20 minutes between the, um, first 911 call that was made and the moment when you had law enforcement actually going into the classroom and uh, confronting the, the shooter. There was a period of about 47 minutes, I believe, where you had 19 law enforcement people in the hallway of the school. You had 911 calls coming from um, children and teachers begging for help, and they um, did not go in. So I think there are a lot of, there's a lot to discuss there. Um, and I think there's, a lot to talk about when it comes to what, if anything, we as a society learn from this and what can be done to change this country so that this does not become the common occurrence that it has become in our society. And Carrie, I'm going to start with you because you, you spent some time in Uvalde this past week, wrote a great column about, um, uh, what happened and your experiences there. Um, I guess I would just ask you just, you know, what you're now that we're nearly a week um, into, into this horrible tragedy, what, you know, what your impressions are and what you, what you heard from people uh, when you were in, in Uvalde. Uh, well, I was, I was there Wednesday. And so, I mean, that's the day after. And, and uh, the one person I spoke to who, was actively involved was a, was a nine-year-old girl, uh, Adeline Garza, who was in the in the in the school at the time during the shooting. And because they had gone practice active shooting drills, she and some other kids were in a second floor, second grade classroom with the teacher, being quiet and staying still with the lights out. And just the fact that this is what children have to do. Uh, I don't know. It, it's we we do this so often, and 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 we do this so well in the United States. Mass shootings, 
And we, we have this, the same ritual. It always starts on Twitter where, you know, people who are legitimately outraged and shocked at people being slaughtered in, in seconds with a semi-automatic weapon and expressing grief. And then, you know, the, you have the, the Ted Cruz's who want to use that opportunity to go after people for feeling bad that another yeah. mass shooting has taken place. And we're the only country in the world that this happens to regularly. And it's, be- and you know, and, and the false argument about wanting to repeal the, the second amendment as, as, as vague as that amendment is to begin with. No one yeah. ever argues for that. No one is ever saying take all the guns away. Right. But it makes no right. sense to have semi-automatic weapons and to be able to have an 18 year old be able to purchase two of them for his birthday. Uh, many people have made the the argument, and I, the Monday morning I saw the San Antonio Congressman Joaquin Castro make this point, that there's something absurd uh, about a system, and particularly in this state, where at 18 years old, you can't go into a store and buy beer. You can't go in and buy cigarettes, but you can buy an assault-style rifle for yourself at the age of 18. That That has to... I, I don't care how how supportive people are of uh, of gun rights or if you know how how much they they maybe love guns. That has to give people pause. There has to be some something about that does not compute. No, no, or, or, or that or that he could he can't buy a handgun, but he could he could get the AR-15s. Now the handgun he would have still killed people, but he wouldn't have killed twenty one. And even as as even with and maybe, and then the police officers there wouldn't have probably wouldn't have taken so damn long to do anything. Uh, but I, you know, I think all of us, most of us, remember almost ten years ago, as the news broke about Sandy Hook, and thinking, okay, this does it. This is it. This is where we we finally get smart and do something about about this, about the availabilities of, of these of these weapons. But it didn't happen. But I, I, I do feel, Gilbert and Greg, that Uvalde feels different mm-hmm. uh, to me in a way that George Floyd felt different. Meaning that I think something's going to happen. I don't know if everything that should happen is going to happen. But I do believe that, that this, this, this may be the one where we're really shaken into our senses, into our moral senses, into being our true moral selves and doing something so that this doesn't happen again. Well, what I want to ask you on that front is because there is some talk about some some bipartisan work uh, that, that could happen. John Cornyn is, is probably going to be part of, the, of any this group that's going to discuss some possible um, gun reforms, uh, red flag laws. I think is that that seems to be the thing that has the maybe the greatest chance of of some some bipartisan agreement. But um, you know, but there was some you know there were bipartisan discussions after uh, after Sandy Hook, and of course the, the the filibuster is really there were fifty five votes in the Senate, uh, but um, they just you know it was the, the the filibuster is really what killed any chance at any kind of gun legislation, but. Um, I guess what I would ask you, Carrie, is like, is it your just your your gut feeling that the chances are greater of some of breaking the logjam at the federal level, 
or at the state level? It's and it's actually a, it's actually a um, kind of a contradictory feeling I have because I do I, it does feel different, but at the same time I am not particularly confident about anything happening at, at the federal level. I think Joaquin made another good point over the weekend is that uh, not take that back. It was it was actually Julian, <laughs> forgive me. It was Julian uh, talking about how about Mitch McConnell. And every time there's something like this, Mitch McConnell, he kind of thinks that he's going to going to uh, do something cooperative, do something bipartisan to address the issue. But it's basically just just uh, just trying to pacify the anger that everyone is feeling right now. And it's basically a holding pattern. And then after this gets a little bit behind us, they'll do nothing. Uh I'm, so I'm not I'm not particularly confident that anything is going to happen in the Senate. And I don't know if, if if this change comes somehow through the elections in November. But I do feel that that something I don't want to say the word positive, but mm-hmm. something maybe ameliorative will come out of this to at least reduce the chances of this happening again. Although, as I say that. I know that it will. Yeah, so on Friday at his news conference, Governor uh, Abbott said that he was committed to kind of addressing this appalling problem in Texas. He said all options are on the table. Uh, He didn't really define what that meant. But, you know, throughout the day, you saw an increasing number of state lawmakers calling for a special session to address that, uh, to address this. And, you know, I think that's likely to happen. But, you know, at the same time, roughly the same time he was, you know, speaking in Uvalde, there, you know, Governor Abbott had uh, a recorded message to the NRA convention in Houston saying that there are thousands of gun laws on the books across the country with all kinds of restrictions and none of it has worked. So you have to really question what kind of parameters you would set around a special section session. Yeah. Like, is this going to be all about hardening schools? You know, I mean, <laughs> making sure more dark, more doors are locked, that there are bullet, bulletproof windows and a single entry point. Um, I mean, if that's if that's all yeah. it's going to be yeah. about, I mean, this is it's not it's not really addressing the problem. And, and if you look at what the way he talked on, on Wednesday, his first press conference, which was the one that was interrupted by his Democratic challenger, Beth O'Rourke, which created a, a he went up and said, basically, this is on you. Um, uh, Abbott really, you know, that was really the tone that, that there are lots of look at all the shootings in Chicago and in New York and in Los Angeles, and they've got stricter gun laws than we have. So he basically um, shot down, as he has before, the idea that, um, you know, that gun control works. He talked about hardening schools. This was the big message from Senator Ted Cruz saying we should have like one entrance for a school and have a, an armed person there. And, and that's it. Keep everything locked. And I think all of us are, you know, un, uh, support the idea of, of trying to make your, your school campus as secure as possible. I mean, but, you know, there you're, you're looking at that. Kids have PE, they have recess, they have, you you know, you can't keep kids locked in a building the whole time. And even if we're, if we just separate ourselves a little bit from, from the specific nature of what happened in Uvalde, two weeks before that we had uh, 
a mass shooting in Buffalo? Are we going to, are we going to like, uh, have supermarkets that only have one entrance and keep them locked at all times? I mean, are we going to, what about right, churches? Right. So, churches? Yeah. We've had church yeah. shootings. I mean, what do we do? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you can't turn every, insti- every institution in the United States into a fortress. <laughs> I mean, I was, you can't. That's right. I was going to ask you, Greg, because, um, you know, the, the we'll, we'll learn more about some of the details when it comes to how law enforcement handled this. And it's an incredibly tough job. And there were a couple of uh, officers early on who did uh, try to engage with the um, with the shooter and they were grazed uh, by, you know, by bullets. And, um, you know, I think it, it, it was it was a, an incredibly difficult and dangerous situation. So um, but I would. What I guess what I'm asking you is one of the the big themes that we've heard from Republicans in Texas and nationally when they um, when they argue against gun control is to say that, no, we need more guns. We need good guys with guns because the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is is to have good guys with a gun. As was written about in the Express News and elsewhere, and and you edited some of these stories, there were 19 good, good, there were 19 good guys with, with guns, uh, in the hallway of that building for nearly an hour. And, um, we're not, we're not able to, 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 to deal with that situation. I, does this, does this change the argument that, 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 which has been a persistent argument on this issue? Uh, oh, I think it absolutely does. Uh, but I think what you're also seeing is, uh, I mean, you've got the the police chief of the Uvalde uh, school district really, really under fire right now. He's the one who he was the what's known as the incident commander on the scene, and kind of early early in the rampage, he he determined that this was not an active shooter, but a but a barricade situation. And that's a whole you know the. The protocol for that is completely different. If you know, if if it's an active shooter, as we've heard from a lot of p- police chiefs around the country in the last few days, in a case like that, officers on the scene don't wait. You know, they 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 act. They go and they shoot until the active shooter is dead. I mean, you know, that's that is how it goes. Uh, for a barricade situation, it becomes something more like a hostage situation, and you wait them out. That's what happened in Uvalde. A lot of the attention is going to be uh, on Arredondo's Arredondo's, uh, call and everything that followed from that. But the fact of the matter is there were 19 police or as many as 19 police officers in that hallway. And, you know, they didn't they didn't breach the room until 1250. Um, So that's a huge failing. However, you however you slice it. I guess before we we move on to another topic, I I just wanted to mention, I think one of the things that I think has to be acknowledged when we talk about the logjam that has existed uh, when it comes to addressing uh, gun violence. And and we had the tragic shooting, uh, mass shooting at Sandy Hook nearly 10 years ago. There was optimism that something could happen after that, and it it didn't. And, um, you know, I think that we can all... uh, certainly respect the rights of people to be able to defend themselves, to be able to have, uh, to have a firearm at their home to, pr- to provide 
security for themselves and their family. Um, and I think we come from a state where hunting is a big part of the culture. And we, I think we understand that too. But I think that there's also been, um, and there exists, and I think it's, it's particularly prevalent in the state, uh, what I would call, you know, a gun fetish sort of mentality where people romanticize guns. They, um, there's this kind of sort of macho identification with guns. And if you go to, you know, political conventions where you see, you'll see t-shirts where people are, people aren't talking about guns as if just in the way that they would talk about a home security system. You know, this is, this is a much more intense thing. And, uh, before we move on, I went to, to mention somebody, uh, posted this, um, on social media and I thought it was, it was interesting. This is from the late great Texas columnist Molly Ivins, and I believe this was after the Columbine shooting in 1999. And uh, she's kind of looking at the history of this, this phenomenon. And she said, gun manufacturers faced a simple problem. A gun, if taken care of, does not wear out. And as the country has become more suburban and less rural, demand has gone down. So the industry had to create new markets. And what it has been selling are fear, more lethal, lethal weapons, and Rambo appeal. It's a gruesomely fascinating marketing story. So... Just wanted to leave people with that to think about, because I, I do think that, as Kerry said, you know, if you look at the polling, there's polling for, you know, whether uh, whether you're talking, I think universal background checks, almost complete uh, agreement in the in the, in our um, uh, in, uh, the voters when they're polled on that in support of that. I think red flag laws, people are, are supportive of that. I think there's even a, a pretty good amount of support for uh, an assault weapons ban. But there is a political logjam because um, so many elections are really decided at the primary level. And uh, we have Republican elected officials and candidates who know that if they if they if they look like they're compromising on on gun rights, that um, that could be a death sentence for them politically. So um, I just think that it's something that we have to think about as a culture um, when we, you know, we address it. I'm going to move on to the runoff elections that we saw last week. Um, there were a, a couple of big ones at the, at the state level. Um, we saw uh, in the Republican race for attorney general, the incumbent Ken Paxton, the sort of uh, uh, eternally indicted Ken, Ken Paxton defeated um, his challenger. <laughs> I think he, I just, I don't really remember a time. My dad used to say that he, you know, my dad was, was like 10 years old when, when Franklin Roosevelt became president. And my dad was 23 when Roosevelt died. And he said, I, when he died, I didn't remember, I didn't remember anybody else being president. I just thought he was the president. I'm, I'm not trying to make light of this, but I don't remember a time when Ken Paxton wasn't under indictment. I, I just don't, it just seems well, to be like. I, I keep waiting. I, I keep waiting for Ken Paxton to invoke his constitutional right to a speedy trial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When's, when's that, when's that going to happen? Yeah, let's, let's, let's hold our breath on that one. Um, so, but he, he, as expected, he defeated uh, his challenger, George P. Bush, by more than a two to one margin. And I, um, I think this is, we, we've kind of seen this coming for a while, but I think this is maybe a, uh, uh, we, this is kind of a fading dynasty in the Bush family. And maybe this might be kind of a, this might, this might signal the end of that, of that family dynasty, given how Jeb Bush did in the, the 2016 presidential race. Um, we all, on the democratic okay. side, um, we had a uh, race for Lieutenant governor where Mike Collier, uh, who's the nominee four years ago, uh, defeated Michelle Beckley, um, and will be uh, challenging Dan Patrick again. I, I think that's going to be a very interesting race. But we had some a couple of big ones. Uh, 
uh, locally. And uh, we had in the county judge race, we had uh, on the Democratic side, Peter Sakai defeating state representative Ina Minhadis. Um, it, Carrie, did that? Did anything surprise you? That I mean, he did, Sakai did did um, win a plurality of the vote in the first round, um, and things kind of just followed uh, according to that that pattern. Did anything surprise you with that race? Yeah, the margin. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, going in, I, so you know, fifty fifty chance that that either one could win. But uh, I, I I was stunned at, at at just the margin, beginning with. Uh, early voting to, to, to same day, same day voting. And I mean, there's so many things. I mean, obviously I think he had a good, great political uh, organization going, but you know, I, I, I also wonder if just something, if anyone else other than Peter Sakai could have, you know, won a race by this margin against Ina. I mean, Sakai is such a, beloved figure in this in this city in this community uh and i kept coming across people who who they they knew nothing else about what was about what was going on in the race they knew about judge sakai and i I just so i was surprised at at the margin of victory i mean i I really thought he knew what's going to win yeah Uh, but i knew there's a good chance he would win but the margin of victory just really stunned me yeah i was surprised by that too um yeah, I mean, I actually thought uh, Peter Sakai, you know, probably had the edge going into this. But, you know, Gilbert, when you wrote about uh, Ina's campaign's uh, mailer kind of criticizing Sakai for a ruling he'd made on the, while on the bench hmm. about the city's uh, sick pay uh, ordinance, hmm. I mean, that told me that okay, <laughs> she's, she's not in good shape. Yeah. Um, and I think that was actually a harbinger of, of election day. I think, I, I think you could see she was definitely in trouble and, and knew herself to be in trouble from that mailer. Uh, and in that regard, like maybe it shouldn't, you know, the results shouldn't have been such a surprise, but even at, even at that, I, I was, I was kind of stunned by the, by the spread between the two of them. I, I was too. And I, I would say that, um, you know, there's a lot of um, hope or optimism on the Republican side locally that this might be a year where you could, a Republican could could win the general election for county judge. We've had Nelson Wolf, uh, a Democrat in there for more than 20 years. And Trish DeBerry is the, the Republican nominee. And, um, you know, she's got a lot of history and support in the business community. And I think there's a, a feeling that if this is a, a good Republican election year, as many have predicted, that she has a, a chance. And I, I think that it's going to be a competitive race. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I, I would say on the Democratic side that a candidate like Peter Sakai might be the, might be the best uh, uh, option for Democrats if you're dealing with, uh, you know, tough political climate for your party, because he is, as you were pointing out, Carrie, I mean, he's just somebody who is just sort of, uh, I mean, he's just liked on a bipartisan level. He's someone who has, has built up a lot of goodwill in the community from his years uh, uh, as a district court judge. And I just think he's not going to be perceived. And really, if you look at the, his campaign, he's he's not, he's not coming off as a real, uh, you know, very partisan figure. Um, and, you know, I, I will uh, give him, uh, I think this probably paid off for him. He didn't, uh, he didn't get negative 
in the campaign. I mean, there were maybe a few little passive aggressive comments uh, here and there, you know, as, as tends to happen when you have like two candidates debating. But it, it, there was not a, he, I think it was a pretty positive campaign. And I don't think, um, I think the Democrats will be pretty unified behind him. And I think that he's somebody, and he's going to get some Republican votes because he's just, he's just a liked person, I think, in the community. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, as, as the Democrats fought it out in, in the runoff, I mean, Trish DeBerry was out there. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. think she took uh, as much advantage of the situation as she could. She was, you know, she got to a lot of events in that time and she met a lot of people. Uh, so she wasn't resting. Uh, you know, she, I'm, I'm certain she, she wasn't, she didn't know exactly who she was going to be facing, but she, you know, her campaign effectively started during that runoff. Yeah. I think, yeah, Trish is going to, is, is a formidable candidate. And, um, Regardless of who she was going to run against, I, I think that she has as good has as good a chance as as, as any uh, Republican official could in winning this, and I think she probably has a better chance than any, anyone. And it's going to be interesting just the the, the styles and the personalities. Uh, I think what what helped Peter win by such a large margin in this primary is going to carry over into uh, into November, but. Uh, Trish is tough too, so it's gonna it's it's gonna it's gonna be a fascinating race, and I wonder. I don't I don't I'm just gonna get a little personal, but I I, I wonder if it might be a little bit less so personal, just be, again because of the personalities of ours. Specifically, it's gonna be hard to come at Sakai in a certain way, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's gonna be a fascinating race. I, I agree, and I think that one of the elements to to this too is that you have Greg Brockhouse kind of uh, working on the Trish DeBerry campaign, kind of helping mm. behind the, in the scenes. And uh, we've talked about this before. I know that Greg Brockhouse, the former councilman and mayoral candidate, is a very um, controversial figure here. And he's got some personal history that, um, you know, that, has, we, that the Express News has certainly covered. But that aside, I w- I've always believed that he, uh, he's a very skillful politician and that, he's, and that his political sense or his political IQ, if you want to say that, is is, is pretty high. Um, I think his he's I think Agreed. he always had an an innate knack for messaging, political messaging. Now he sometimes got in his own way, and his he had a lot of baggage that got in the way of that. But I think his he I think he has an intuitive grasp for like what messages work, and that is going to be uh, a part of this campaign that will be really interesting to watch. Um, before we wrap things up, we want to talk about the. District 28 congressional race. Um, District 28 um, is really anchored in Laredo. Uh, it's about 40% of the, the turnout that we see is generally from Webb County, but it has uh, part of the east side of, of San Antonio, some of the downtown San Antonio. And nine term Congressman uh, Henry Quare, uh, was has, has been in a runoff with progressive challenger Jessica Cisneros. They're both from She's an immigration attorney. And this was a race that got national attention about four days before election day. You had Bernie Sanders coming to campaign uh, with her. Um, Prior to that, during the first round, you had Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, this was has really been, a, a, I think, one of those races that people look at and think, well, where, what's, where's the Democratic Party going? And Quare is kind of a symbol 
of maybe a more of a, a moderate uh, sort of old guard Democrat versus um, a, a young progressive challenger. An incredibly close race. Um, as things stand now, Quare is ahead by 177 votes uh, out of about 45,000 cast. So we're talking about 0.4% difference. And the uh, the X factor here is that there are still some provisional ballots. And for, for anybody listening who's not sure exactly what we're talking about with that, these are instances where people go, they turn out, they turn out to vote. It, there There is some piece of information missing. They maybe lack some form of ID or something. So they fill out a, what's called a provisional ballot. So they're able to submit it and they're given the opportunity. They're given some time to kind of cure the ballot, to come back and provide the information that is needed. So um, it's, I think it's still a little uncertain how many of those are out there. There are also some mail ballots that kind of come in late that were mailed on, on election day and that probably haven't been um, counted yet. Or included in the in the in the total count, so this thing isn't over yet. Um, uh, we don't. The, one of the things we found in this election is that the big counties for Jessica uh, Cisneros were Bear County, where she won. She got about eighty six percent of the vote. It was astounding, and she did very well in Guadalupe County, Webb County, where both of the candidates are based. Was was the big county for Cuellar, uh, where he, he won by more than two to one. We don't know how many of these these. Uh, uncounted ballots are are still out there in each of these counties. And um, I think he's got the advantage right now, but, um, and he has declared victory. He declared victory on election night, but I think it's still um, uncertain. Yeah. I guess, uh, Kerry, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this before. We thought it was going to be close. Uh, anything, anything stand out to you about this one? Well, it's, it's as if we're waiting for a box 13 to show up somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and it probably will. Uh, you know, I, I you know it. I I remember when we on a I think on the show before before the general election before the first round uh, after the feds had 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 raided Congressman Crayer's house and you know we were saying then that boy if if Democrats can't win can beat them. This year, when will they ever beat them? And then you had a little bit, we thought, extra maybe uh, impetus coming from uh, Roe v. v. Wade and and, and Crayar's stance being different from most of the party. And as someone who who lives on the east side and is now in that district, I can attest to how hard the Cisneros campaign worked. The last two weeks, they were out on the streets every day because I had door mailers on my door every day. So they were working this. Uh, but it is, if, it, you know, if, if things stand as, as they are, even as, as such a close race at, with less than 200 votes, then it's, it's like, you're not going to ever beat this guy. <laughs> if yeah. you're a progressive Democrat, you're not going to beat this guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the rural parts of the of District 28. I mean, I, I, I just think it's, you know, it's they, you know, frequently vote Democratic, but not necessarily. I mean, as we saw in the last presidential election yeah. where several several counties on the border uh, back Donald Trump, uh, it's it's not a given. And, it, you know, these are you know, these are some socially conservative communities. They they tend to be where, 
you know, Cuellar's strength is most anchored, you know, mm-hmm. in addition to Laredo, his hometown. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's formidable. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's he's not, you know, he's extremely vulnerable in, uh, you know, Bear County and Guadalupe County, but I think much less so uh, the, the farther south you go. Yeah. I, I was, was going to make a, this is maybe a, a little bit of a strange comparison, but I was thinking about, um, because I happen to live in what was uh, Joe Strauss's uh, district, now Steve Allison's uh, state legislative district. And I know for a fact that there were Democrats in this district who would vote for Joe Strauss, the Republican candidate against a Democrat, because they would think, you know, Joe Strauss is more valuable to uh, San Antonio and, and even if you're and if you're a Democrat, he's probably more valuable to you as a Democrat um, the, as the Speaker of the House and someone who maybe is going to look out for San Antonio and get some things for San Antonio and maybe in some cases block some you know, legislation that's kind of extreme from Republicans. And he can actually maybe achieve more than just a, a freshman Democrat. Um, and I, I think it's, again, maybe a little bit of strange comparison, but I think that there's some thought, you know, that you have a Henry in uh, this district that you have Henry Quare, who does is a Democrat who maybe votes with the Republicans sometimes, but he's on the appropriations committee. He's got a lot of clout. He's got a lot of influence. He's able to get some things for Laredo in particular. And maybe that's more value to some people than having someone who is maybe um, more in line with them ideologically, but is going to be. Uh, a freshman member of Congress. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say on this is that you could, it, it, it was interesting to sense that Quare was feeling some of the heat when it came to some of his, his, his positions. And, and when he had a rally a few weeks ago where uh, Jim Clyburn from South Carolina was here and Quare was speaking and he was saying, you know, we tried to pass that build back better build, you know, we're going to get it next time and everything. And it's pretty well known that Henry Quare was one of the people in the house who said, Hey, let's not attach build back better to the bipartisan infrastructure. Let's, let's, let's pass the infra- infrastructure bill first and let's deal with that because, and he knew very well, uh, as AOC and others said, you know, if we don't keep these things attached, the people, the moderates in the party uh, who want the in- bipartisan infrastructure, we've got nothing, no leverage over them to convince them to vote for Build Back Better. And, and Quayer knew that, but he was pushing Nancy Pelosi to, you know, let's get, let's vote on the, the bipartisan one first. But now he's like kind of championing Bill Bagg. We're going to get it next time. We're going to pass this next time. And um, he had a, a, a pack that supported him, had an ad that ran in the final week of the campaign, talked about how he's looking out for South Texas families and he's, he's trying to keep supporting that $15 minimum wage. Um, and one of the things that was, this was really fascinating. Again, he's the only anti-choice Democrat in the U.S. House. And in this ad from a, a ProQuare group, it said, with women's health, health under attack from extremists, Democrat Henry Cuellar. And they kept saying Democrat Henry Cuellar. Just to let you all know, he is a Democrat. Democrat Henry Cuellar has, has, made, it, has made it clear that he opposes a ban on abortion. So he, he's, you know, he's, a, he's against, he's not, he's anti-choice. But he didn't. He's, he doesn't like this this Supreme Court decision that's coming down the pike. So it was it was interesting that they felt because you're right, Greg. It is uh, there are parts of this issue that are, that are very socially conservative. But even so, he was kind of feeling like I just want you all to know, like uh, I am a Democrat and I'm, I'm not with I'm not with the court on this one, you know. So, um, so. <laughs> anyway, well, I mean, if gonna, you have to say it. I mean, yeah, that's right. That, that's, that's right. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> we're going to wrap things up. Um, again, we, 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 you know, our hearts go out to the people of Uvalde and everyone uh, who's been affected by this, by this horrible uh, story. And uh, we're going to be continue to cover it. And these, these are the stories of, of the, the people in that community. These are important stories and, and we're going to continue to, to do what we can to, uh, to get those stories out there and to make sure that people don't forget. So thank you all for listening. We hope you all are, are doing well and we'll be back with you next week. Take care.